remind you, if you are a member of First Baptist Church and were not able to be here this past Wednesday, uh, we can do our best, if you would like one, to get you a copy of the new budget and a copy of the leadership that was elected. And if you have any questions about either one of those things, I will do my very best uh, to answer them. Let me get settled here. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, uh, we have done a lot of singing about your grace, and we have done a lot of singing about what you have done for us. And now we turn to your word, and I pray you would help me to be a faithful messenger of what it has to say. And I pray, Father, that the goal that you desire to reach in our lives through these kind of messages on this kind of a topic, I pray it would be accomplished. And I pray it would be accomplished by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've decided to take some time and talk about the topic of last things. Professional theologians call the topic eschatology. Esch meaning last, ology meaning study of, eschatology. And what we established last week was that there is a framework by which we need to see this subject. And that is that we understand that at any given point in history, past, present, or future, God is interested in redeeming people. He is redeeming people. He's doing so for his own glory. And he's doing it leading up to an unhindered worship of the people of God. But one of the other things that we established last week is that the Bible does have a goal, or the Bible does have a desire to have happened in your life when it comes to this topic. And that desire is that we would become a people who are at peace, less anxious. That we'd be the kind of people who were calm. Even in the midst of the world burning down around us, we would be the kind of people able to rest. That is the goal of the study of last things. Now, it's interesting that every modern study of such things declares that Americans are now more anxious than they ever have been in American history. We are on more drugs for the purpose of dealing with anxiety than at any point in American history. And it continues to climb year after year. It is seen almost uh, the, the most or the biggest increase is seen, um, uh, seen among those who are now uh, considered millennials, those who are in high school, later parts of high school, those who are currently in college. They are an anxious people. And we are, as Americans, an anxious people. But when it comes to this topic, the Bible says, in fact, commands in First Thessalonians to talk about this for the purpose of comfort. We are to be comforted. In talking about the things that are leading to and certainly the topic of the return of Christ. And this topic then is meant to be a warm fire in the middle of a blizzard. I know I'm not supposed to talk about snow. This topic is supposed to be a reminder of the wealth that you enjoy at the presence of an unexpected medical bill. This topic is supposed to be the medicine we take to keep us calm in the midst of trouble. Or maybe one way to put it is, is that this topic should give the result that is the exact opposite of the 24-hour news cycle. Now, one of the terms most closely associated to the study of last things is the term anti-Christ. 
Now, most people, when they use the term antichrist, they're referring to an individual that the Bible talks about will appear towards the end of days. He will be a figure that will come on the scene in some form or another. He will be an active enemy of the people of God, therefore an active enemy of Christ. And will have a desire to draw people to himself instead of Christ. Now, again, that is how most people use that term. But that is not the only way the Bible uses that term. And I think that if we fully understand the way the term is used in Scripture, we can actually more fully understand this concept of the Antichrist and its place in eschatology. To do that, we come to 1 John. John tells us at the very beginning of his his letter here in 1 John what his goal is. What is John's goal? He says it this way, I want you to know that you know him. John's desire is to help the reader who of reading, who's reading 1 John to be able to test. He gives a series of tests. He gives a series of measurements. He wants you to be able to see clearly whether or not you're a Christian. He wants you to know whether or not you know Jesus. And one of the ways he does that is by pulling out the measuring stick of what it means to not be a Christian. And that is why he uses the term anti-Christ. So what I want to do this morning is I want to show this to you. And I want to give you three points to understand the concept of the Antichrist so that we can understand what the Bible has to say about it. Number one. Number one, antichrists, so that's plural, antichrists deny that Jesus can save. Antichrists deny that Jesus can save. Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. John says it is the last time or the last hour. He's saying, look, we understand that we are closer to the end of the story than we are to the beginning. The Bible does separate the idea of last things from the idea of end things. So John is using the term last, saying we're not at the end, but we are clearly closer to the end than we've ever been. Anything, the Bible uses the term last to describe anything that happens after the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And he says, because it is the last hour or the last time, he says, look, you know that there shall be an Antichrist come. That's singular. He's talking about the individual. But he says here, what I want you to know is that many antichrists, plural, have already come. So he begins then to describe to us what are these antichrists. And the first thing, the first mark or the measurement or the test that he gives is that they have come out from the assembly. The idea there is this is a group of people who have withdrawn from what we would call the local church some point or some way, they identified as Christians at one time. They might have been members. They might have been baptized. They might have just attended regularly. But at some point, they were considered part of the group. But they have now withdrawn from the group. And then he gives us the next describer. They deny that Jesus can save. They've withdrawn from the group, and they now deny that Jesus can save. Again, uh, the idea could be anything from... They think that Jesus is just a prophet. They could think that maybe he's just a Jewish rebel. Or they might just think that Jesus hasn't done enough. That's the story of Galatians. But the point is, they've withdrawn from the group, and they now deny that Jesus can save. 
Verse 19 and verse 26 suggest that this group that has withdrawn and now denies that Jesus can save are trying to, according to verse 26, are they trying to seduce. They're trying to seduce the church to go with them. They're trying to get the church to follow along. And what John is trying to point out here, and multiple parts of our New Testament say the same thing, is that these kind of people have always existed. Since the very beginning of the church, since the very beginning of Christianity, there have always been a group of people who once identified, then pulled out, denied that Jesus could save, and tried to seduce others to follow them. The book of Galatians, as I mentioned, is about that idea. A group of people came into the Galatian church, said, look, Jesus did a great job dying on the cross for you. But what you really need to do is believe in Jesus and follow these rules. And so, in essence, they were trying to say that Jesus alone could not save. Second Peter describes the same group of people. In Revelation, several of the churches are now in trouble because they have entertained this idea that there is Jesus and perhaps there is something more needed. But I want you to think about something. John is clearly displaying and clearly the New Testament shows us Again, that these groups of people, these individuals, have been there since the very beginning. And one of the things you need to think about is that 2,000 years later, the church is still here. Many of those groups that have withdrawn from the church, many that have withdrawn from the truth of the faith, have passed away into history, never to be heard from again. But the church is still here. The church still exists, it still grows, it's still spreading into places like Iran and China. And yet there's always been anti-Christs. The reformers 500 years ago loved this term. In fact, they labeled lots of different groups uh, the anti-Christs. But probably the most popular way they would use it was to label the Pope. They loved to talk. John Calvin would do it. Martin Luther would do it. They would call the Pope the Antichrist. What I want you to understand, though, is the Reformers, even the Roman Catholic Church now admits this, the Reformers were dealing with a Roman Catholic Church that had not only distorted the gospel, but had now begun to teach things that were antithetical to it. And so they called the Pope an Antichrist. Now, the thing is that I want to point out here is that from that history... The fact that they would use that term so often to describe the Pope, we have now passed, it's been passed down to us this idea that the Bishop of Rome is going to play some major part in end times prophecy. The Reformers never intended for generations later for the church to ever believe that the Bishop of Rome was going to eventually be the Antichrist. They were simply using the term, as John is using it here, to describe somebody or some group that has begun to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what he's trying to point out and trying to get us to understand, the application here is this. If you believe that Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to make you right with God, you believe the truth. And anything or any individual or any group that comes along to teaches anything other than Jesus has done everything necessary to make you right with God is an anti-Christ. It is something other than the truth. 
Let me make another application. That means that anybody who believes that Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to make us right with God should be claimed and treated as a brother or sister in Christ. And it doesn't matter whether or not they have the word Presbyterian or Methodist or Lutheran in their church sign. But it also means there is great comfort. Remember, the goal here is always going to be comfort. Because it means that my salvation, my putting or my being right with God, is dependent upon the one who has done everything for me and not on me. So when I struggle with doubts, when I struggle with fears, when I am anxious about where I am in the world or what what God is trying to do in my life, I can find myself comforted by the reality that no matter my insecurities, no matter my faults and failures, my salvation, my rightness with God is dependent upon Jesus Christ. But John makes also the application here, and that is this, to keep your eyes open. For there are always those who seek to divide the church, always those who seek to take it away from the truth. As John says, there have always been anti-Christs. But then number two. Number two, the anti-Christ, so singular, the anti-Christ will claim to be able to save. The anti-Christ will claim to be able to save. Again, verse 18, the Bible says there is an individual, because it is the last time, John says, we know that we're expecting an individual to appear, an individual described or labeled as the Antichrist. He is clear that we are talking or we are expecting an individual. And he says in verse 22, this Antichrist will deny the Father and the Son. He's already mentioned in the text that anybody who denies the son is a liar. And so he's saying, look, this person is not only going to deny that Jesus can save, he's going to deny the heavenly father altogether. And he is so, therefore, he is going to be a deceiver, a liar. Now, in in light of verse 26 again, it's clear that the intention here is to describe him also as a seducer. Someone who is trying to draw people away from the truth and to himself. So the description here is essentially that he will be a false teacher. Now, I want to understand that term because it gets thrown out a lot. The Bible actually talks about two different types of false teachers. If I were to get up here on a Sunday morning and I were to say something in error, something wrong, and it was so blatantly, obviously wrong, the Bible would say to you that perhaps the issue here is uh, lack of maturity Or the issue is bad teaching. And so there's an obligation from the church to try and correct me. However, if I'm a false teacher who takes his error and desires to draw people to himself, to gain a following to his teaching, we use the term heretic. That is a heretic. And what what John is describing here to us is not simply a false teacher who says erroneous things. The Antichrist will be a heretic. He will actively take his false teaching and attempt to get people to follow him. 
Now, John's summary here of a denier of the Father and the Son, of a liar, of someone who seduces, are all perfect summaries of everything the Bible has to say about this individual. The book of Daniel, chapter 11, really gives us our first details about the Antichrist. He does it using what is known as parallel prophecy. So Daniel in chapter 11 is talking about a man by the name of Antioch Epiphanes IV. He's prophesying. Antioch has not existed yet. He's talking about a man who is coming in the future. We know this man is Antioch Epiphanes IV today. But at the same time that Daniel talks about Antioch Epiphanes, he starts talking about someone like him that is going to come later. The Antichrist. And so we can actually glean some more things from Daniel chapter 11. We know that this Antichrist will be someone who will give rise to power in the Middle East. He will be a heretic, meaning he will deny faith. He'll deny religion. He will be attacked. He will win easily. And he will gain more and more political and military power, the apex being at the Battle of of Armageddon. But we also know, the Bible says, that he will give rise to a beast. Now, here's an interesting term, and I know that many people love these left-behind books. But the beast, the term the beast, is almost exclusively used in Scripture to to describe a political figurehead. And so the better idea, the way I would have encouraged you to imagine this, is that the beast is probably something closer to what we would call a henchman. Someone that the Antichrist will unleash to persecute and slaughter the people of God, who will be his, the point of the spear of his attack against the things of Christ. Which is why we get to the mark of the beast and the desire to get out of the way, to not become a target for the beast. Revelation will concur on all of these points, tells us even more about this man who is a liar, who denies the father and son, who's clearly trying to attempt or trying to present himself as the savior of mankind. And he will, as we see, accomplish. He will bring some form of unity claiming to be able to save. And this is why all those evidences together, and I know I went through them very quickly, this is why we can't get caught up in the nonsense. For no American president is going to find himself in power in the Middle East. We're not talking about the Secretary General of the United Nations. And more likely than not, we are not talking about the Bishop of Rome. We're looking for a man who will gain political and military power in the Middle East, who will deny any semblance of faith or religion, who will claim to be the one to come to finally unite mankind and will gain political and military and cult-like following uh, uh, never seen before. But now we have to come to a question. Why does John bring this up? Why would John tell us not only about these individuals that are pulling out of the church and claiming Jesus can't save, why would he even bring up the Antichrist? Well, again, his point here is to give you a measure, a test, to decide whether or not you are following the truth. Notice in verse 24 to verse 29, there's a single word that appears over and over and over again. Hopefully you notice that. And that word is the word abide. What he's trying to get us to do is to see that the thing to do, no matter what is going on around us, no matter the rise of political power, We abide 
in Christ. He's saying to us, he says in the text, he says, look, if you abide in Christ, if you remain in Christ and do not abandon Christ, he says the promise is yours, eternal life. Because you abide in Christ, he says you have the anointing, the reference to the Holy Spirit. You have someone who can teach you and help you and discern with you what is true from what is false. The most important thing John is trying to say to us is that we need to abide in Christ. And if we do so, there will not be any shame should Christ return in our day. Yes, there is an antichrist to come. And this is a scary, powerful individual. But John is saying, if we hold fast to Christ, we have nothing to fear. This is meant to give you a darkness in comparison to the light. This is not about wondering if it's that guy or that guy or that guy or that guy. John's purpose here in bringing up the antichrist And later, the Bible's reason for bringing up the Antichrist is to encourage you to have more confidence in the man, Jesus Christ. That brings us to number three. And we turn over to chapter four. Chapter four. Number three, the spirit of Antichrist presents counterfeit saviors. The spirit of Antichrist presents counterfeit Savior, verses 1 through 6. John brings up the topic again, but this time he uses an interesting phrase. The spirit of Antichrist. So we've learned about an individual Antichrist to come at the end. We've learned about Antichrists who have always been in church history and continue to appear. So what is the spirit of Antichrist? Well, if you want to think of it this way, he is the flip opposite of the Holy Spirit. This spirit of Antichrist is in opposition to what the Holy Spirit is doing. And the Bible, in simple terms, tells us the Holy Spirit's purpose on earth and in our life is to help us believe and to empower us to love. But the spirit of Antichrist will do the opposite. It is in the concept of discord and self-righteousness. He again notes the idea of the the spirit of Antichrist is present in false teachers. The idea there is that there are teachers who can dazzle and amaze. We might want to think for a good illustration or a good example. Think of the magicians in Pharaoh's court who were able to reproduce some of the miracles of Moses. They dazzled and they amazed. You might have speakers who could leave you with all sorts of good impressions and give you all manner of impression about their skill and their insight. They might even be able to do unexplainable things. But John says, the question is, do they confess that Jesus has come in the flesh? In that statement, what John is saying is, do they put their allegiance to Christ or do they present counterfeit saviors? Anything presented to you, any type of Christ presented to you that is less than the Jesus that the Bible presents is to essentially present something counterfeit. To certainly, if we, if we go to a Savior that presents or denies Jesus as a historical truth and perhaps sees him more as an inspirational t- uh, story, that is the spirit of Antichrist. 
I always get a chuckle when I read this. And I don't mean this in a derogatory sense, but this is how the Apostle Paul uses it. But in Colossians, the Apostle Paul describes the spirit of Antichrist that will get people to, to get into veganism and horoscopes. So eat your meat, be right with Christ. That was a joke. But the point is, is they will come along and they will deny what the Holy Spirit is doing. Note, he also says the other mark of the spirit of Antichrist is worldliness. What is worldliness? That word gets thrown out a lot. Really, we could simply put worldliness is to be anti-love. The Bible will consider things like a vow of poverty a form of worldliness, just as the Bible says that greediness is a form of worldliness. The Bible will say worldly, the, the a vow of celibacy is, can be worldliness just as much as in, in, in involving yourself in all manner of sexual immorality. Because worldliness discourages faithfulness in marriage. Worldliness promotes abusive language and actions. Worldliness encourages an attitude of self-righteousness. Worldliness, as one theologian put it, and it sticks in my mind forever and ever, worldliness toddlerizes people. It fractures relationships. And so we note the opening command here in chapter 4, test the spirits. Does it encourage faith in Christ and love of your neighbor? Or does it draw you away to something counterfeit and encourage self-righteousness? Well, the Bible clearly teaches that such a spirit has always been present. The serpent used that spirit to deceive Eve, asking her, encouraging her to desire something other than what God wanted for her. The spirit was there in the children of Israel the day they made the golden calf at Mount Sinai. Moses disappears and they demand something other than what God wants for them. We see it in the book of Acts as men who come along trying to get Christians to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. Paul in the book of Galatians describes the spirit of Antichrist as in opposition to salvation by grace. It is in opposition to a Savior who saves us entirely by kindness and not in response to our goodness. And so you see, for an example, if you take a vow of poverty, it is in opposition to grace because what you're trying to say is I can earn what God wants to give me freely. Or to live in greed is to be opposed to grace because it is to say that God has given me what I deserve. That is why it is called the spirit of Antichrist, is against what Christ has done. And perhaps your mind is turning, perhaps you're thinking of all the things that are going on in the world around you. And so the question is, what do we as the church do? What do we do as Christians in the face of the reality of this counterfeit spirit? Well, John's advice, his direction is clear. Remain confident in the truth. John is not proposing that we conquer such a spirit with our intelligence. We are not going to conquer such a spirit with our own strength. What he calls us to, as you see in the text in verse 4, what he calls us to is to be confident in the one that is greater. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit are more powerful than every force that seeks to deceive, to blind, and to divide. And we should know this by experience. For we would not be Christians today if he had not conquered these things in us. 
So the teaching of the Antichrist. It should cause us as a people to most jealously guard the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a warning that there will always be those trying to spy out our liberty in Christ, desiring to enslave us again to the things of the world. And it also reminds us that there will be a person who will gain unparalleled power, unparalleled influence, and will use all of his resources in opposition to Christ and the gospel of grace, and he will lose. So we are called to test the spirits. So we are not divided. So we are not led away. And to put our confidence in Jesus who has overcome the world and by whose gospel we have been set free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this teaching from your word. The comfort here, Father, is for us to be reminded of the one who has overcome the world. There is no spirit, no force that is bigger and stronger. And I pray, Father, you would encourage this, not only in comfort that we would be reminded of the power of our Savior, but also, Lord, that you would keep us from ever drifting from the truth. Hold fast to the gospel, which truly can and does change lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.